0: Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Elias Mohanna, who is the Manning Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature at Brown University. He earned his doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University and has held fellowships from the American Council of Learned Societies and the Whitting Foundation. His research focuses on encyclopedic literature in the Islamic world and Europe, the cultural production of the Mamluk Empire, and the problem of the vernacular in different literary traditions. He is heavily involved in digital humanities. He edited the Digital Humanities and Islamic and Middle East Studies out from De Gruyter, 2016. He's also the creator of the Digital Humanities Project at Brown, a multi-year initiative that convenes an annual conference and holds a variety of research activities. He's also a contributing writer for the New Yorker's online edition, and his essays and criticism have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, and other periodicals. He has also translated and edited The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition, out 2016 from Penguin. And his most recent book is titled The World in a Book, Annoyery and the Islamic Encyclopedic Tradition, out 2018 from, out 2017 from Princeton University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Elias.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So what brought you to Annoyery? To some extent, what's the intellectual history of your own work and your intellectual biography?
1: So here's the story. I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania and I was taking my general exams, which uh, at Penn was a, it's called a 50 book exam where you have, um, Mm. it's kind of a Eurocentric thing where, you know, you have 50 texts, usually novels uh, or selections of poetry or plays on this, you know, this list and it's supposed to represent the canon of a given literature so I was doing that with um, Roger Allen um, for Arabic. And so Roger had assembled a list like this. He had kind of made it work for Arabic uh, for previous students, although I don't think very many had, had done it. I don't think there had been very many students in classical Arabic at Penn. Um, so one of the items on the list was a selection from encyclopedic texts. So alongside the typical kinds of things you'd imagine to be on an Arabic canon exam, like, uh, you know, and and, um, you know, selections of poetry and, and various things, right up into the modern period, so early novels and so on. Um, there was also, you know, he just had like an item on the list that was like, well, some kind of representation of the encyclopedic literature of the Mamluk period um so one day i remember <laughs> we went into van pelt library together um because that item was blank still and we had to kind of fit, f- round out the list so we went up to the i think it's the fifth floor at van pelt maybe not i don't remember um and we kind of walked up to this bookshelf that included new 80's uh, encyclopedia and other ones as well. And he kind of just, um, he was like, let's see. And he just pulled a random volume off the shelf. Um, and he, it was like volume nine or something. And he kind of flipped to the middle of it and he said, okay, um, this looks good. How about, you know, do like 150 pages from this, from this, uh, section. And I was like, okay. And I had no idea what was in it. I had no idea what this book was. I had no idea who the author was, but in the course of pre- preparing for the exam i um you know i had to figure out who who he was what this book was and i was just com- i was um really mesmerized by the material which is odd because the material was on financial transactions and uh legal codes related to like if i remember correctly it was related to maritime craft and you know the 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 classification of different kinds of boats that you might um find on the river and what happens if, you know, this person's property is affected by that person's property and, and how, you de- how you determine blame and how you uh, write up the contract, you know, rental agreements and all this stuff that first of all has nothing to do with literature. <laughs> um, and second of all, I had no idea it existed. I mean, I wasn't even aware that we had this kind of material in, our, in the classical sources. And you know that's natural because I was like a second year graduate student, so um, I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind as like a, as a very as one of the highlights of my experience of studying for my generals, um, and a text that I that I had known nothing about, and I thought you know maybe this would make an interesting basis for a for a project down the down the line like a dissertation project or or, or an article or something, and then you know. Uh, a, a year or two passed, and I was in a different place. I was in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard, and um, I was working with Wolfhard Heinrichs and Shahab Ahmed. And I remember uh, in my first, if it wasn't my first year, then it was my the beginning of my second year. I was having a conversation with Shahab, and um, he just, you know, abruptly, as he often did, Kind of asked me. He just asked me out of the blue. So, what is your dissertation project? And I said, I don't. Well, I didn't want to say I didn't. I didn't know. I I had to come up with something on the spot. And for some reason, this project on Nubaidi or this uh, link to Nubaidi kind of jumped into my mind. And I said, Well, you know, I'm thinking one idea I've had is to, a dissertation about the encyclopedic literature of the Mamluk period. And he looked at me and he said that's your dissertation project unless proven otherwise you shouldn't even look for a different one like you just you should assume from this point on that that is what your dissertation project is unless something much better comes along but the i have now decided for you that is in fact a worthy project and that and that's what it should be and i just i said okay and i kind of didn't i didn't think about anything else after that conversation um and i just began trying to familiarize myself with these texts and because i had already read some of noaide i i guess i started with him and very quickly realized that this was a um a fascinating work and deserved a study of its own
0: yeah that's a pretty common story i feel at some point you you throw an idea to a dissertation advisor and they're just like Yeah, that's a good idea. Go with it. Don't think of anything else. Right. Um, And that's a good way of keeping you on track to some extent because I know that that's always the fear is that you'll get off track and you'll do something or you'll imagine a project that's too big. And that's actually something I really appreciated about the book. And you say it's the beginning that this is um, a very small book about a very big book. Yeah. So to take another step back before we get to the actual book itself, what was sort of the nature of knowledge in Mamluk Egypt? I understand it's a very big question. That's basically like asking you to explain to an alien what the liberal arts system in the US is like. So, could you take a stab at that?
1: What do you mean by the nature of knowledge? Cuz I was I was kind of scratching my head when I read that question.
0: So, how what is sort of who oh, the I don't want to say the genealogy of knowledge, but sort of how would you Describe knowledge production, perhaps, Mm -hmm. Um, what different genres of knowledge exist, because one word that I have often used to describe knowledge in the pre-modern period is the Islamic sciences. But I understand for a variety of reasons that that's not always appropriate.
1: Right. Okay. Um, Well, it is a huge question. So maybe I'll try to um, domesticate it. By focusing on the areas of knowledge that were of interest to Innoedi. Um and which is you know already a lot—it's uh, many different spheres—but um, if you were to, you know, if you were giving a lecture to uh, a supper club or to a undergraduate course, and you had one unit to kind of talk about this moment in world history, namely. Egypt and Syria in the from the 13th to the 15th centuries, and what the kind of knowledge landscape was like. Then you would have to begin with probably the uh, the landscape of education. Um, this is a time that is characterized in Islamic history by a kind of explosion of educational infrastructure. So what that means is that um, we have the establishment of uh, madrasas. That are uh, you know in, in the school cities of the Mamluk Empire, primarily Cairo and Damascus, but other places as well. Um, and some of the you know the statistics that we have uh, are kind of astounding, like the number of madrasas and not just madrasas, you know, which are prim- primarily um, you could uh, are primarily colleges of law. But also other educational institutions, um, places that taught hadith, um, Sufi lodges, uh, other places where knowledge was transmitted. Um, But even if you're to just focus on the madrasa scene, um, it was kind of an amazing time for that institution. For a variety of reasons, we see uh, a kind of political economic situation emerge that makes it uh profitable or um i don't know um it that incentivizes the creation of uh charitable endowments wakfs uh to support these kinds of institutions so wealthy patrons um, members of the um of the ruling class the the military administrative bureaucracy uh but also just like wealthy merchants um would establish these uh, charitable endowments that would provide the financial support for um, some kind of an institution. And, you know, it could be a a really small um, place, you know, kind of like a a small mosque with a, 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 you know, a little library attached that had enough um, funds to support, you know, some, some basically some uh, charity... Uh, activities for the poor, or it could be a, a huge mosque uh, with a huge, um, you know, mausoleum attached and um, a staff of, um, you know, let's say 10 different uh, professors. Um, and then stipends for graduate students and a dormitory for them, uh, you know, money for the gardener to take care of the the surrounding gardens, uh, money for the I don't know, like the ox driver who um, powers the the water wheel. Um, then money for a librarian, money for books. Um, so that's the kind of um, now those those particular institutions were often connected to the state, often connected to the uh, the sultan, and um, yeah. So that that I, I think you have to you have to begin with that particular infrastructural environment um when you're talking about knowledge transmission in in the mamluk empire but beyond that i mean there are so, other milieus there are you know i kind of talk about this in the book that um there were other places where different kinds of knowledge different sciences uh were transmitted and um you know we have evidence to suggest that the that hospitals played a role in that regard for what we would think of as the natural sciences um in other places, too.
0: So, specifically, I want to bring us to al Nwayri, because this book is about an encyclopedia written by El Nwayri, um, a rather large book. And he has a, I think you described it at as as one point as a novice, um, but that's not quite uncommon during this period um, with regards to knowledge production, and it continues. So who was he? What was he amidst this context that you just laid out for us?
1: Yeah. So um, Nuri was a. Uh, he came. We think that he came from a family of bureaucrats. But he was born uh, in Upper Egypt uh, at the end, you know, towards the end of the 13th century, the last quarter of the 13th century. And at a pretty young age, he gets a big job in the Mamluk um, bureaucracy. So you know, if he, I think he was like 19 or 20. When he he landed his first job and it was in an important office, so it it seems likely that he would have had some kind of family connection that enabled him to get that job. But basically, he spends the next you know fifteen to twenty years working for the state, and um, this is an important part of the story because the Mamluk bureaucracy grows. you know, in the in the 13th and 14th centuries, into the 15th century, the, the bureaucracy becomes a very important part of the landscape. Um, many scholars, uh, literatures, poets, historians um, work for the state, and this is like one of the big stories certainly in you know one of the big kind of arguments in my book but i think it's also one of the features of uh mamluk intellectual culture um social history and it's it's a, it's a part of that uh history that we don't really uh, know very well um we all kind of take it for granted As scholars of this period we kind of um we know this fact that like all of the our major primary sources for this period um you know, somewhere in their CV, it says, "Oh, yeah," and he worked for, you know, the chancery, or he was in this DN or that DN. Uh, but there hasn't been a whole lot of work done on this question of how the how the fact of working for the state um, influenced your role as a, you know, uh, your profession as a hadith transmitter or as a historian or or whatever. Um, so Noureddin is like in this way; he's like. Ch- totally unremarkable he he works for the state um he doesn't have a uh, particularly like sexy job um he doesn't work for the chancery which is where the intellectuals usually end up uh the literatures the people who think of themselves as udaba you know uh if, if if you were that kind of if you were a man of letters you you would sort of want to be in the chancery uh that's where a lot of the the, the famous people that we think of from this period um usually worked so he he's like a financial drone um for a decade and a half a very powerful one i mean he worked in in one of the most powerful um offices uh, in the government which was the diwan khas um the sultan's bureau of the privy purse which is basically like the sultan's private you know uh, slush fund that he used to to pay for his own land acquisitions and property acquisitions and so nuairi was like was his man and Nasser muhammad um who was maybe the greatest or one of the sort of two or three top most important sultans of the mamluk empire uh the longest reigning one the one who really kind of established in many ways the the uh Kind of created the the topography of of Cairo as we know it. it I mean, what we associate with Cairo is really um, goes back to the Mamluk period, and, and, uh, and Nasser Muhammad was a builder. He was a he was a real fan of monumental style construction, and so Noedi was close to him. He was one of his favorites, um, and he um, you know he, they had a falling out at some point, but he was essentially one of uh, Nasser's men. And he was appointed to some you know, important um, positions in Nasser's administration. And so anyway, after this you know, very celebrated career, which he could have stayed in and probably, he probably could have um, risen even higher. Um, he was sort of on that path. Um, at some point he decides to retire. And he the way he puts it in the preface to his book is he realized that he wasn't getting any closer to adab. He wasn't really, you know, his great passion was was adab and, um, you know, literary erudition. Um, and he felt that although he'd had a wonderful career in administration, and he says this, like, I was the top, I was like the number one administrator, I was like a fire on a hilltop, I was, you know... Um, I could have, you know, I was a contender that that's sort of rhetoric. Um, he said, you know, I decided to give it up because I, I couldn't really glean, um, the kind of knowledge that I wanted just from like circling, you know, rubbing elbows with all these literatures. I really had to kind of devote myself to study, to, to learn, um, what I needed to learn to really, to become a kind of master of adab. Um, so he said and i needed a book to kind of accompany me i needed to have a book to put all my stuff in to, to to gather all of my notes and all of the things that i thought were important and so he he kind of i don't know he he styles his his work as a compiler as a he 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 kind of describes his book as a it's almost like a commonplace book as a place for him to put all of his his accumulated um clippings and and things that he'd read in one place so he could see them all um so he began compiling the nihaya nihayat al-arab fi al-adab is the full title so uh which i translate as the ultimate ambition in the arts of erudition. um he begins compiling that probably around thirteen, fourteen, or 1316 so towards the end of his career um still a very young man uh and then he it takes some I mean, he's he's working on it until the end of his life in 1333, um, primarily because the the end of the encyclopedia is a chronicle, and so he just keeps adding to it until he dies.
0: So you describe this period as an explosion of universal compendiums, and it's 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 interesting because I think you use the term universal compendium, but you also use the term encyclopedia. So generally, what was what was sort of, who were his contemporaries in terms of encyclopedias and universal compendiums? And specifically, why did you choose to use the term encyclopedia in, in multiple places and not universal compendium?
1: Okay, um, so the, this this time period is a, um, it's a period of sort of growing books. I mean, the books are getting bigger. We're seeing more and more compilations. Um he was inspired, I think, it seems clear that he was inspired by uh, a work of his contemporary, uh, one of his contemporaries, al Watwat, who was um, a bookseller um, and a copyist in Cairo, um, who, you know, was kind of like a, a polymath, somebody who knew something about everything because he sold books. And um, he was also a literateur. And he had written a, a four-volume encyclopedia. Um, that Nuwedi basically used as the kind of the basis for the Nihaya, but then he added one more part to it, which was history. That's the part that's missing from Al-Botwot. Uh, uh, there are other bits too that are missing, and I kind of go into it in the book. Um, but, you know, sort of, it's really after Nwayri, um that you begin to see... Um, encyclopedism kind of really take off in, in various genres. I mean, it, it had been there throughout all of classical, um, Islamic thought. I mean, going all the way back, as far as we go, we, we, we've seen, we see compilations, we see classifications of knowledge. Um, but this is, this period is really kind of associated with this gargantuan, elephantine, you know, intellectually omnivorous kind of, um, intellectual culture. Um, and, you know definitely in, in the later part of the 14th century into the 15th uh, century we we really see this uh take off um and so some of the f- the famous works following the Nwayri are ibn Fadlallah al-Amari's Masalik al-Absar uh, which is another you know that's like a i want to say 24 volume um encyclopedia and then you have al-kalqashandi subh asha which is a, you know also a huge uh chancery encyclopedia and then of course we have things like biographical dictionaries and um, encyclopedic chronicles um so to to the question about you know how how to describe all of this um the word encyclopedia obviously is a european word um it has an interesting history it doesn't you know when it was coined um it didn't refer to the kinds of texts that we today think of as encyclopedic um it was coined it was it, it was actually in a kind of an erroneous coinage i mean it was um created by humanist scholars who who modeled it on what they thought was a uh, an ancient greek term um which they kind of misread um so You know, it has a history in the Renaissance as denoting certain kinds of works, usually works that that, um, showed the connections between different branches of knowledge, but didn't kind of like uh, weren't these multi-volume reference texts that we, you know, today we think of an encyclopedia as this bulky thing that you have on the shelf that um, is a reference text, basically. Um, So that only really happens um, later on, you know, during the Enlightenment. so, you know, there is this question of, you know, what, how, to, how to refer to these texts that we see mul- multiplying in the Mamluk period? Uh, should we call them encyclopedias? What are the problems with that? Um, is there some other word that we should use? Uh, you know, I'm writing in English, so any, any term that I use is going to be foreign in some way or another, unless I choose to use an Arabic uh, word. But even there, it's it's problematic. Like if I had said I am not going to use uh, a foreign term to to denote these works, um, I wouldn't have a good choice among the Arabic ones either because we don't have an equivalent um, from this period. Nawaydi did not, you know, refer to his text as, um, you know, like a muajam or a jam'a or a mausua. I mean, the is much later; uh, is a modern term. Um, and even if he had referred to, uh, I mean, he really thought of it as a work of Adab, even though most of it is history. So the generic categories, the, the kind of actors categories are not very useful in, at least in, in establishing like a single kind of paradigm, uh, or a single category that can be used to, to unite all these different works.
0: Do you think he intended it to be read as a piece of Adab?
1: It's hard to know how he thought it should be read. I mean, there is evidence in the book to suggest that um different kinds of reading practices would have been um suitable. Um I think that he the way he's organized it, it, I mean, it's so fastidious and it's so logically arranged and he had such a clear idea of where he was going um and what would be in the book and what would not be in the book because you have this like very self-conscious system of cross-references within the book where he'll say, you know, um, he'll be talking about, uh, for example, you know, elephants. And he'll say in the chapter, you know, on elephants, he'll say, uh, and elephants have been used as um, weapons of war. You know, they've been used as like siege animals. Uh, and the most famous example of this is Mahmoud of Ghazna, who used elephants during his siege of XYZ. Um, and then he'll say, but if you want to learn more about this, then you need to check out this chapter where I discuss it, um, instead of saying, and let me tell you that story, which was often the case. A lot of, you know, so-called encyclopedic literature, um, authors, you know, in the Islamic world and elsewhere, uh, authors were, encyclopedic authors were were known for kind of just rambling on and, and going off in lots of different directions. Um, it, that's kind of like a a, a staple or a, a signature of a lot of pre-modern encyclopedism. Is that it's it's um, it's kind of like rhizomatic; it goes in different directions, and it's not it's not highly uh, hierarchical. Even if even if the um, the plan looks hierarchical, the contents often are not. Whereas Noiety really was you know really anal about what was going to be in which box. Um, so I think he did intend. I think he had a vision of people reading the book uh, in a kind of consultative way that, you know, if you want, if you're working in the chancery and you're writing a letter and um, you need some sort of a metaphor um, for a famous, I mean, let's say you're, you're writing a couple, you're writing a couplet of some kind to put in a letter to some foreign governor or something, and you want to make reference to the sea um because his kingdom is on the the shores of xyz and you want to make some sort of like a uh i don't know some kind of um an analogy between the boundlessness of his generosity and the boundlessness of the sea um and you want your couplet to make reference to some kind of fame of a famous image from arabic poetry because that is you know is a way of like heightening your own erudition or appearing to be you know more literate than you are, then you could reach for a New Eighties chapter on the sea and kind of quickly peruse the, the 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 poetry that had been written on it. So I I do think that he thought about things in that way.
0: Can you give us a sense of the overall architecture? I mean, you brought up elephants. We know elephants are in the book, but it's such a wide, like as you mentioned, it is a very large book that you're actually relatively large book is, is about what's sort of the architecture of the encyclopedia.
1: The, the book has 33 volumes in its modern edition in the manuscript. It's 31. So it's over 30 volumes long, um, about 9,000 pages. And I, my calculation is something like 2.3 million words. Um, So it's arranged, Noedi arranged it into five funun, so five arts or five books or, you know, whatever upper level structure. Um, and so you've got the, the kind of, like, the universe, which is a kind of a cosmological thing. So, you know, um, heavens, earth, the different, like, you know, geography, that kind of stuff. And then you've got the human being, that's part two. And then animals plants and history Uh, and then within each of those five um you have five aqsam so five sections um then you know he breaks things down further and then within each of those there's a different number of chapters ranging from like three to i think 14. um so it's it's sort of like a tree structure um which is a common way of organizing um cosmographical compendia And so he, my argument is he sort of takes that pattern, um, that structural pattern from the cosmographical tradition and it applies it to a work of Edub.
0: Can I just ask, how did you approach, I mean, did you read the whole thing? How did you approach such a large work?
1: Yeah. Um, when I started working on it, I was living abroad, um, and, I, I was living abroad for a year to be close to my family in Lebanon. And, um, I kind of, I approached it really in a a sort of naive way, um, because I knew it was huge and I wanted to read as much of it as I could. And so I just said, all right, well, I have this many days, you know, that I've set aside for reading this year. Um, and this is how many pages there are. And I'm just going to like, I'm just going to divide the number of pages by the number of days and go, um, so I think I set myself a, 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 a daily um, quota of like reading 40 pages. So I would sit down in the morning and I would just read and I would take notes and um, just try to get a sense of what was there. Um, so by the end of the year, I had read, I don't know how many Volumes. I'd read a lot, um, and I had notes on a lot of the stuff. But you know, some things I had I, I had skimmed. Some things I had read very closely, um, but it had given me a sense of like of of, of the contents and the contours of of this work, um, and I knew which areas I could then go back and zoom in on. So, you know, that was the process of working on the dissertation. And then when I went back to to the dissertation to start writing the book um you know i had to kind of like start all over again and so i you know reread my sources um discovered new parts of the encyclopedia that i hadn't actually read during my doctoral work because i wasn't focused on them um and you know and so there are parts of it that i've read you know hunt probably dozens of times and there's other parts I'm sure that I have never even looked at. Um, but I'm confident that like, I would say 80% (laughs) of it I've read. Um, and when I worked on the translation of, um, like the super abridged, um, kind of like sort of an anthology of the work, uh, for Penguin, I had to, you know, obviously read that stuff all over again. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's kind of my way of, um, that's how I've interacted with it.
0: That's incredible. Wow. That's quite an achievement. Um, so how did Al work get from, you know, him finishing the book to you coming across into the library, uh, Van Helt library, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, what, what was the afterlife of the book, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so it um in in my monogra- monograph I kind of um I go over its reception history, and um, my sense is that it was not you know it, because of its size it was not copied in Toto you know um, it would have been very rare for somebody to say I'd like a copy you know to walk into a bookstore and say I'd like a copy of Nihat Arab you know. That would have been hugely expensive to to do, so my sense is that um individual volumes of it circulated um and you know if someone were to want to kind of do another study of this text, they would they you could kind of track the bits of it that were most um interesting to people by checking out the manuscript record and getting a sense of like which which volumes were copied most. Um, so in the beginning in the Ottoman period, we, we start seeing, um, there's a couple, you know, very, well, there's at least one, you know, an incredible, uh, copy of it. That's a two volume copy that must have made, been made for some very wealthy patron, um, that is now at Leiden. Um, and, you know, there is some evidence that it was, it was considered, you know, that that Ottoman viziers uh, took an interest in it and had it copied um, because it was kind of like a summa of classical Arabic. Um, But, you know, things get really interesting from my perspective when Europe discovers it. And so the final chapter of my book deals with that European reception. Um, And the story there is really centered in Paris and in Leiden. um, When the... Parisian. I mean, when the French and the Dutch um, orientalists start collecting Islamic manuscripts um, in the 17th century, um, this is one of the first things that uh, makes its way to Europe. For for some reason or another, it it's like one of the you know the cornerstones of those early collections at the uh, Bibliothèque de France. I mean. What what was known then as the Bibliothèque du Roi, uh, which became the BNF, um, and Leiden University's uh, amazing collection of um, Arabic manuscripts, uh, Arabic and Turkish and Persian manuscripts. Um, so, um, so I kind of trace. Um, the interest of European Orientalists in this encyclopedic literature and specifically Nuaidi, what, what they were hoping to get out of it, of that text, what which parts they were interested in. Um, and so from there we kind of um, move forward in time to the Arab world's rediscovery of this uh, encyclopedic legacy and that kind of happens towards the end of the 19th century. Um, and so the work begin there's a kind of a movement in egypt to reclaim arab heritage in the form of manuscripts um and to assemble a national library and um to kind of launch i mean this is part of the nahda and you know the renaissance of arabic letters and thought um so the project to begin editing and work um is really interesting um and a lot of what I know about is, you know, comes from uh, research by Ahmed Shemsi, um, you know, who really kind of uh, discovered that there was this fascinating uh, kind of like a subscription program that was launched um, to, you know, how you see like these, um, I don't know if people, even, if you still see these advertisements for like, um, you know, buy these coins you know there's like limited edition coins that you can buy you know like an airplane magazines you can you know subscribe to certain um i don't know like collections of the world maybe 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 people don't do this anymore but i think i remember when i was younger that you could like buy a subscription to like the world library or the great classics or something and then every every you know few months you'd get this new book something like that was happening with (laughs) annuity as a way of financing the edition of, of the text and its publication. Um, And so it still took decades. I mean, the last volumes of, uh, of the Nihaya were only published. um, I want to say like in the sixties. So it took decades and decades to publish the entire thing. Um, And you know, then there was, a, there was a re-edition or there was kind of like a, a knockoff edition. And then, of course, it was digitized and now it's online. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I came to it.
0: So one thing I really admired about the book was – and I mentioned this earlier – is that you're very careful about your terms. I mean, Encyclopedia and Universal Compendium are – it's one such example. But you focus so um, well on Mamluk Egypt. And I had a difficult time, and I think this is to the book's credit, orienting the book in Islamic studies or just general book history. I didn't feel like it was this classical Islamic studies, um, again, to its credit. And I think it reminded me very much of the debate that we've been having in the field of Islamic studies for quite a long time. Um which I often surmise as Islamic or Muslim, which, and you mentioned the late Shahab Ahmed, um, he sort of took that and published it in the form of what is Islam, which came out two or three years ago now. So what's your take on this sort of, where do you fall along this debate? And also where do you orient your book?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure I can answer that question uh, (laughs) in a satisfying way. You might have to edit this out. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's not a question that's really live to me. I think the Islamic versus Muslim debate, I mean, that maybe that's something that is, is a debate that it's much more vivid um, in religious studies departments or among scholars who are kind of really involved in projects that we assign to in our disciplinary mode to uh, religious studies programs. Um I mean my work is really falls pretty solidly in intellectual history literary history um book history you know histories of knowledge I mean so the common term there is history um and I don't know um I guess I I really didn't engage with um questions of um as i think about it i don't really engage all that much with questions that would be considered like the province of islamic studies you know um you could do that i mean i suppose you could write a book um certainly about encyclopedic culture uh that is really uh that really tackles these sorts of questions that shahab was interested in in what is islam um Maybe you could I even do it with Nuaidi. I mean, I'm not sure that you could. I mean, there, he does have some material on Sharia, and there's a lot of hadith in the book. He, he, was, a, he was a hadith scholar, and he studied with some of the, the big names during his time, and he, you know, he copied Bukhari Sahih uh, nine times and, and sold it for a lot of money. He was kind of known as somebody who, who uh, produced these beautiful copies of Bukhari Sahih. Um, but i don't know i mean one thing one link that I do see between shahab's interests um, and this project, and maybe this is why he was interested in this project and you know served on the, my committee um, is that you know a key the um, signature of uh shahab's um vision of islam is is that it's encyclopedic um he really sees the kind of substance of like what he calls context in what is Islam, um, you could, if you wanted to, I mean, you could basically define it as like the encyclopedic legacy of Islamic thought. That's that's kind of what context is. Um, and for him, you know, in the modern world, Islam um, is is impoverished. Uh, with regard to context, uh, Muslims living today because of modernity, because of the colonial intervention, because of, I mean, for lots of reasons, not just colonialism. um, He says that that they have a much more, Muslims living today have a much more attenuated relationship to context, to what he calls context with a capital C. Um, And it's because they're not, they're not embedded in the sort of discursive universe um that somebody like a noiti would have been or you know even not even noiti just like the average uh madrasa student living in ottoman edirne i don't know you know um having some kind of connection to this tradition um and when we say tradition this is like one of shahab's um bugbears uh, his sort of pet peeves is but increasingly today, because of what he calls like legal supremacism, we associate the tradition with law and hadith, and that's like what Islam is. But for him, it's like no, it's not. Islam is is encyclopedic. It's everything else in addition to the stuff that religious studies programs think of as properly Islamic. It's all the other stuff in a new way is encyclopedia. It's the poetry and the uh, and the cosmology and and um you know the literature and the lore and all the stuff that is you know precisely contradictory the stuff that doesn't seem to fit within the frame of what we consider to be islamic today that for him is like that's the substance of islam that's what's remarkable about it um and it's not incidental to it it is it's properly essential to what islam is um so i think i don't know as i'm thinking about it if if he were alive today and you asked him what is the, you know, if you had to kind of point to a paradigmatic text that, um, you know, that defines or that kind of encapsulates what your, what your vision of context is or what your vision of of that Islamic tradition is, you know, he might point to like Hafez's uh, divan, or he, he would probably talk about the Quran as being that, that text of contradiction, uh, but I think that he would also you know on his top ten list, he would probably say um, an encyclopedic text like new eighties um, because you know it just it just it, it it has all of the it has that multifaceted character
0: oh, I appreciate that answer. I think you did a wonderful job there. Um- it's a very tricky question, I find, especially because he took 600 pages to articulate that. And uh, when you boil it down to the way I did, Islamic or Muslim, I think it's a very, pick this one or that one. Um, so one thing I mentioned earlier is that you're sort of, you're very, very involved with digital humanities, I think, to some extent. We, one could even call you a leader um, in modern Islamic and Middle East studies Um digital humanity fronts. So how has that come to bear on this project? What are you working on with regards to that right now? How do you see the current state of digital humanities in Islamic and Middle East studies?
1: Yeah, um, I have been involved with digital humanities in the Islamic context. Um, I sort of feel myself retreating from it a little bit, Um, not because of any uh, intellectual misgivings. You know, to the contrary, I think that things are... Tremendously exciting in the future is is um, is very bright for that sort of scholarship in our field, um, and there are some wonderful people working in that field who have you know who are taking it in very exciting directions. Um, of course, Maxim Romanov, uh, Sarah Savant, Matt Miller. Um, you know, I, I I probably should not list more people otherwise i'm going to miss <laughs> names but there's all you know if you just take a look at, at the speaker lists of uh, some of the folks who are working uh, who, who go to you know increasingly common conferences on this uh theme you'll see like you know there's some really exciting scholarship happening um so yeah i mean i kind of got involved in mm-hmm. dh um as a oh, how do i put it like um a sympathetic, um, bystander. I don't know. I, I, I sort of, I, I, I was involved in digital things really purely in, in a, in a instrumental kind of way, going back to, uh, this, you know, famous course at Princeton that Michael Cook taught, uh, which is a methodologies course in Islamic studies. um, and students, you know, in that course would frequently resort to these text databases to, to look up things that Professor Cook had set to, um, as assignments to us. And... Um, So I had become, you know, I had become interested in these huge text depositories like Al-Warraq and Maktab al-Shamila just as like tools of my trade sort of thing. And then when I was working on Nuwari, because, you know, it's a huge work I used uh, and because I had a digital text version, you know, I would use things like um, regular expressions and word searches to kind of just make sense of what was there. Um, statistical sorts of manipulations of of the document. Um, And then, you know, when I came to Brown, I thought, hey, why don't we try to get something going here? Let's have a conference and see what's out there. So this conference that we held in 2013 at Brown, which became the first of like several conferences that um, we would organize, um, I think was the first conference devoted, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was the first one devoted to the Digital Humanities and Islamic and Middle East Studies. Um, and a volume came out of that. Um, but, I mean, that was only, let's see, 2013. So that was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And in five years, I mean, it's just exploded. The number of, of things that are happening, projects that are underway. Uh, of course, that was all happening before 2013. So that was kind of the point of the conference, to see what was out there. So, um, And to shine a light on it and to kind of maybe make it into a thing, make it into a, a, give it an address, um, not a physical address, but give it a uh, sort of a rubric and make people aware of what everybody else is doing. Um, And so since then, I think uh, Islamic Digital Humanities has, has kind of coalesced into a, an exciting subfield, um, And there have been, you know, major grants awarded, ERC grants, um, National Endowment for the Humanities grants, I want to say, um, to support some really exciting projects. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to congratulate one more time on the book. It's a really, it's actually a very physically beautiful book too, in addition to being just a wonderful read. Um, but I always sort of ask at the end of interviews, what are you working on now? Can you get a, give us a bit of a teaser? I also know that you write prolifically for the New York, uh, for the New Yorker and the New York times.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm, I tend to be very, I, I am very busy with the public writing stuff and that's something I enjoy and, you know, I'll hopefully continue Doing that, so that's you know that's easily, I would say, I don't want to say what percentage of my time, but a good chunk <laughs> of my time is taken up by that sort of writing. Um, and let's see what else. So I'm working on two other projects right now. Uh, one of them is a translation for the Library of Arabic Literature. I'm working with um, a uh, with another scholar who's preparing the edition, um, and we're translating um, this 18th century um, travelogue um and so that's been a lot of fun I've, I've been working on that this year um and I imagine that will come out probably in 2020 um and then I'm also working on an, a new book um which relates to um the I guess what I'm what I call the the problem of the vernacular in um Arabic literary history and Islamic thought to some extent. Um, or just maybe not Islamic thought, but, you know, let's say Arabic literary, literary history and thought um, and social history to some extent. So that looks at Middle Arabic, um, looks at non-standard forms of Arabic um, in the kind of early modern period into the modern world and um, tries to kind of reconstruct debates about what it meant to have a modern, what it meant to be a modern society vis-a-vis language um, putting that into context with other world regions that were kind of going through or experiencing vernacularization um, movements so that's kind of what that book is about
0: well congratulations to the book and thank you for having a lovely conversation with me
1: thank you